All right, thanks for the blessing and, and happy Father's Day to you. Can we just give one more round of applause to the kids of VBS who came up, gave it their all. I saw some of them remembering, some of them trying to remember all the different moves and stuff. It was fun to be a part of it, um, you know, as a leader here, but also as a father, you get to see your kids do these things and participate. Some of mine uh, were in leadership, so it was fun to see the transition as they started to take over. Um, but once again, happy Father's Day. We also wanted to acknowledge um, just that tomorrow is when we c- celebrate um, Juneteenth. Um, and I just, we always try to take a minute just to encourage us all not to, it, in some ways it's been cool. We've seen more and more people embrace this as a, as a holiday that is observed um, more broadly than just kind of one of the passing holidays on a calendar. Um, and so if, if you have the opportunity tomorrow, if your time is freed up, I want to just encourage you to do something with that. Don't just, don't just kind of, um, in a, in a um, you know, happy, happy Juneteenth, yay, you know, kind of a thing on the side, but actually engage with something. Go to one of the celebrations throughout the city. There's plenty of resources online um, that I've gotten to be a part of, uh, not, not be a part of, but have gotten to participate in watching and seeing. There's lots of um, ways in which our city um, has uh, celebrations of for this day. And so use it to celebrate. Use it to educate yourself. Use it, those of you who are parents, fathers, I'm challenging you right now. Um, learn, uh, teach uh, your children to um, walk in these ways. This is a generational thing um, that was a challenge posed to me. Of what did you get from your parents when you learned about um, issues of race? And now what are you doing to then pass that on to your kids? So this is a generational um, thing that takes place. And so I just want to put that in front of us um, and uh, be excited and, uh, um, that, that we get to uh, be a church that not only centers these things, but has the opportunity um, to speak about them in a way uh, that causes excitement, but encourages us to want to keep going, keep learning, keep moving, um, and expanding our understanding of the things um, so that we see uh, the end, the eradication. You hear this phrase a lot, the eradication of racism in our day and age. Um, It's probably not possible without the Holy Spirit, but we're going to do our hardest to try. All right? Amen? Amen. Um, Well, okay, so uh, I'm really bad. I was just thinking, I was trying to think of a nice transition from that into the sermon. I'm so bad at this stuff. So that's my transition. I'm bad at transitions. Uh, pray for me to get better at that. Uh, and maybe I'll spend some time. I'll just write some out and have them in the, in the hopper waiting for it. But um, okay, uh, so we, we started three weeks ago a, a series on Ephesians talking about the idea. And the subtitle that we picked is Where Worlds Collide. And so what we wanted to do in the first week was to cover the background of this unique city called Ephesus. And we did that. And then we stepped into next week where we read the introduction and we established that there's this gospel identity. And I've, I, I, my kind of challenge at the end of that as a pastoral or shepherding kind of way was to, uh, we put little papers with just the identity statements coming from Ephesians 1, uh, 1 through 4. 13, uh, maybe, maybe up to 14. Um, and so I've even had some of you come to me and you were able to memorize that. So I, one of the parents awarded their kids with food. So there's a great incentive there. Parent, or kids, ask your parents. If you put in an award, I will memorize these identity statements. Um, and, uh, and so it's really cool to see this idea of these identities coming through. But in the midst of that, it was this, it was Paul putting out this poetic table of contents. Those two worlds don't make sense in our literature. We don't put those two things together. That's what Paul was doing. He put it together, and I I um, compared it to a sampler that you go to a restaurant, and you don't get 
any, a whole lot of any one thing, but what you do get is just a little bit of each piece so that you can try it all. And so Paul is surfacing just by giving a little bit, a little taster of each of the subjects that he is going to bring up through the rest of this book, all in a poem. And so if last week was this poetic thing that Paul handed us with identities and, um, and raising to the surface all these topics, today he's going to switch, and it's a completely li- different literary structure, he's going to give us uh, prayer. He's going to stop in the midst of what he's doing, almost like a pause and pray for us. So if last week was Paul's poem, this is Paul's prayer for us. And you kind of, you almost get this sense as you're reading it, um, that, that what he's doing is, it's like somebody leveling with you and saying, look, what we're about to cover is a lot. So let's stop before we get too deep into it. And I'm just going to pray for you all. All right, and so Paul is in this in this letter he's writing. Stops, takes a breather, and he prays. And you see Paul's time in Ephesus as as a time of success. When we read it in Acts nineteen and twenty, it worked really well. He made sure to establish them. He put a lot of work into it. It was a couple of years and a few months that he spent in this time where he addressed not one but two different audiences. First, the Jews in the synagogue, and then he leaves them and he starts to address the Greek-speaking people, the Roman and and Greek people that are in this area. And, And what he has to acknowledge in the midst of this is that the Ephesian church is made up of these two worlds colliding. And what he has is these two groups that typically are in opposition to each other, two groups that typically don't get along, two groups that are completely different in their cultures, in their background, in their religious practices, in their economic status, all of these things. And so Paul's like, okay, that's a lot too. We're going to need some extra special kind of prayers. It's not just the normal prayers that we pray. I need to pray some specific things. Now, in our day and age, we tend to read this, and I think we float past it pretty quickly without ingesting it. And so we're going to take it chunk by chunk chunk today, and we're really going to ask ourselves, what does this prayer look like for them in that time? How do we apply it to us? And then how do we begin praying over it? So that's what I want you to do. Apply this prayer to us today. Get a chance to allow to use it as a model of prayer so that we can uh, pray that over not just our congregation, but over our city and even over our country, right? And I think what you're going to find is not the kind of prayer that we would tend to pray for ourselves. It's going to be a little bit different, all right? So we're going to jump right in. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 15. I think we have the verses up there, yeah. Oh, or starting in 14. I, might, I got a little overzealous, apparently. So who, who is the deposit guarantee? That's the ending. So jump to for this reason is where we're starting right there. It says this, for this reason, and, he, and, and anytime you see that, this reason, what reason? Well, everything he just wrote in the poem before. So for this reason, now that we understand all the things that we just talked about there, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now here's what tends to happen when we read this. We think he's just being hyperbolic. But what if this guy is continually giving thanks What if he has reason to think that he needs to continually give thanks? If you remember, the you that he's talking about is specifically, likely, the Gentile population of believers who did a few different things. They denied their previous affiliation with an entire cult of Artemis. 
that they had devotional life. It was, it was operating the civil life that was around them. They denied, to some extent, upholding this imperial citizenship that they had, and they denied their association with magic and the occult activity associated with Ephesus. Now, I didn't get too far into that. We spent more time on Artemis and that group of people, and we're going to come back to that later on as Paul gets specific, but I have to mention it now because he brings it up again in this prayer. He says, and you have to know inside of these things that these three entities, for us as we read it, it's just like, yeah, yeah, okay, you gave some things up, whatever. Now you're following Jesus, a good thing, we're glad, but is that reason to like give thanks continually for someone? And Paul is making sure that as he is writing this letter, he knows this is a huge deal that you all have dropped all of these things in your history and that these things hold real tangible power in their lives. They may have unplugged from their source of cash flow and their prosperity. In fact, what Paul did caused a riot in his day. So it's, it's, it's reasonable for us to think that these people were participants in causing the loss of economy that caused that riot. And so now they're probably being shunned in the streets as they're walking around. They're like, I'm not giving you any money. I'm not selling anything to you. You ruined our business. This might mean that they are ineligible for certain privileges based on their citizenship, and so they're in danger for being people who are seen as lacking loyalty to the local entities, the local governing bodies, and that they're contributing to the disruption of their city and their society. Once again, shunned. They were witnessing tangible ramifications. This one's hard for us to, I think, in our day and age to to fully grasp. Tangible ramifications for the spiritual allegiances they had previously held, right? So, So there is likely people cursing them. There is likely demonic kind of attack taking place on them. In fact, I was thinking about this because that word, we, we use curse words in like a different way. And I was, I was listening, one of my favorite artists, his name is Toby Nguigwe, um, and he is known specifically as a hip-hop artist, um, comes from Nigeria, uh, but then grew up in Houston, has some amazing songs, Transformers soundtrack that's about to come out. He was on Wakanda Forever um, more recently. Um, and, and one of the times I saw an interview with him, they're like, hey, it's, it's notable that you don't use curse words in your music. And he's like, yeah, oh, you know, I just don't tend to use curse words in general, but I get what you mean by that. But where I'm from, curse words are like real curses, straight up. Like people don't just curse. There's like people in the streets that will straight up put a curse on you. And he's like, I don't want to have anything to do with any of that stuff. So I just stay away from it as far as I possibly could. And so in this, in this situation, like that's the kind of curses we're talking about. Not like someone's using foul language at you. That's probably happening too. But in this context, they are wanting to make sure that they're coming out from underneath a real tangible, unseen supernatural force that they have been dedicated to in their lives up till now. That's a lot to be coming out from underneath. And so all of this to follow what? Jesus. But keep in mind, at that time, this is like a Uh, an outlier, offbeat sect of Jewish people who call themselves followers of the way. And Paul, it's like he's saying, look, this is a huge deal. I, I praise God every day. I know the circumstances that you came to know Jesus through, and I am so thankful that this is even possible. I don't stop giving thanks for you. He's astounded at what they've given up. He's perfectly aware of the danger they may be in, and he wants them to know that the exchange now, not just I'm thankful, but I need you to know that this was worth it. 
He sees their endurance. He knows what they're under. And then he begins to pray some very specific prayers. In verse 17, this is what he says. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. That Greek word is apocalypse, and that's a much more fun word to say than revelation, all right? Apocalypse, because we got all kinds of things that we use that word for nowadays, but just know that apocalypse is a revealing, a revelation, the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Okay, This is his first specific prayer. The way that he has written this infers not just a one-time revealing, not just this one moment where wisdom is shown, but that there is a continued enlightenment, that light continues to be poured out in the darkness of your lives. So the spirit of wisdom is increasing measure. You've got some things, you've got the deposit, right, that he used in the Holy Spirit earlier on in this verse. You've got the the deposit of the Holy Spirit, but let this thing grow like a seed that's building so that you can know him better. Let your your life be revealed into more and more understanding of who this person is so that your walk in Christ will be affected. And so imagine us, we're like these finite people, exploring trying to discover more and more about who this infinite God is. And so the idea is you need continued wisdom, continued revelation, ongoing abilities. And so the idea, I heard someone say this earlier this week, and I thought it was a really good analogy. It's like you're a spelunker, all right? I'm not, I've never spelunked before, but maybe someone in here has. I'm going to go with cave, uh, cave uh, I don't know, exploration. I've, I've done a little bit of that, not, not on a major level, but it's, it's kind of cool when you're inside of a cave and you're like, wow, this is a giant expanse. And then you're looking around, you get to see the rocks, you know what things might be living in here, creatures, there's maybe a stream or water going through it. Um, and right now in my mind, it actually is Wolf Creek. There's like a cave at Wolf Creek, right? And is it McCormick's Creek or... Uh, turkey run. Y'all know what I'm talking about. McCormick's Creek. All right. I, I, I got him confused. So we're exploring this cave. And just when you like get a sense for this cavern, and this isn't a big one, but just when you get a sense for it, you realize, oh, there's a pathway I can follow. And then you, you shimmy yourself down. You squeeze into these little places. You get through. Sometimes there's more water. Sometimes there's less. You kind of think you're going to get claustrophobic and freak out. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. I'm not going to let you know. And then you open up and you're like, oh, there's a whole nother area. And then I start to search this and I get to know it. And just when you think you've got God summed up the second time, you realize, oh, there's, there's another little passageway over here. And so you sneak through there and you get through it and you come into another place. Like, Whoa, this is even bigger than the last two passages that I walked through. This place is giant. And look, now there's things that glow. There's different rocks and crystals and different things that you can search out. And the whole idea is that God, this prayer, would be this continued revelation, this continued awe and wonder that every time you think you've got God figured out, another opening takes place. You walk through it and you realize there is so much more to God than you ever could have realized. And so this is what Paul's praying. I want you to have this ever-expanding understanding knowledge. For what reason? Well, he says at the very end there, so that you may know about him better, so that you can talk about him in better language, so that you can know him. It's very relational. I want you to understand more and more about who it is, this God, that you have chosen to leave behind everything else for and follow 
Jesus Christ was. So Paul is seeing their sacrifice. He knows that they have strong rooted connections, but he wants them to understand that there is still more. He prays that they continually see more, that we would relationally know God better and better. Then he goes on, verse 18. Um, I pray that the eyes, and I'm going to use the term, the South has the only term that works, y'all, because it's plural, and I want to make sure that that comes across. I pray that the eyes of y'all's heart may be enlightened in order that y'all may know, all right? And then it's given in this nice, clean list of three things. Thank you, Paul. There's so much craziness in his writing. Thank you for a list of three things, and here they are. First one, the hope to which he has called (laughs) y'all. I'm going to keep that consistent thought I'd forget. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Paul's language is intentionally emphatic. He's using these big superlative, like greatest, biggest, strong, most glorious, his inheritance. These words that he's using in the Greek are like these ultimate depictions of this treasure, the deepest well, the greatest one to which you could have an affiliation to. I want to break them down. I'm going to put it back together so that we can see what's going on. So first he says, the hope to which he has called you. And it's referencing that they should know the significance that God's call has on their future. That right now they can look and understand in light of various negatives that you're experiencing on a regular basis, in the streets, in your pocketbook, in the way in which you are having to guard yourself against spiritually dark things. He's making sure that they know that there are positives that allow the hope that is within them to draw them forward. And I love this. It's not a hope like you hope something might come true or not come true. And this is another good analogy that I heard along the way as I was studying for this. I thought it was really appropriate. Um, If you've ever had something that you looked forward to. Maybe it was something you do, an accomplishment, a vacation, something like that. All of a sudden, you catch yourself getting through your hard days because you know not that it's going to happen or not happen. It's happening, but it gets you through some of these difficult times. And so you're like, man, today was a rough day, but all I got is six days left. Until that thing happens, until that check comes in, until that vacation comes out, until that movie comes out. I loved movies as a kid, and I would do this with movies. It would be like, oh, man, I can't wait for that thing to come out. Today was horrible, but, like, all I need is a couple more days, and I'm going to be there. And so these things have a way of, of being the, the anchor that pulls you through difficult times. And he's saying your future is huge. So, so it's not that it's, is it going to happen or not? This is happening. Let it draw you through. Well, I know, at least I know when it comes to that, I've got a great thing coming in front of me and I just have to put my hope in it. Now, one contrast that I wanted to make is that no matter how awesome something on earth is, you usually get to it and it's fun or it's not fun, but it doesn't last forever. Your vacation that money you were waiting for, that thing you were hoping for. I can't tell you, I would like look forward to a movie and they would get done and be like, okay, I mean, it was cool, but it didn't like, doesn't make days better, right? It has a limitation to it. And he's saying this is a hope that does not have a lack of fulfillment in it. The NIV commentary says this, Paul wants believers to know that God's call makes a radical and positive change in what the future holds for them. Correspondingly, and here's the second part to it, their understanding of that hope will change the way they live. 
So it has direct ramifications on what they do. This, there is ethical implications of God's call for their daily life and a call for unity between these two groups that are now coming together from the outside in. So first, we have this idea, don't stop hoping. There is a future, let it draw you, let it pull you through good days, and it won't disappoint like earthly things will disappoint. But how do you live according to that since you have this hope? What does it change in your day to day? And so the next thing he says, the riches of his glorious inheritance. Say that word with me. Inheritance. One, two, three. Inheritance. Okay. If you missed week one, wait, was it week one? Week two. You have to go back and check this out. Because inheritance, when we think about it, it's like when someone passes away and we get to sort through their belongings. If you had an experience like me, it's like, I don't know, does anyone want that? And then all of a sudden, 18 people want that one thing. And then you got to figure out, and it causes a lot of relational issues. We're all having conversations. Like, I don't want any of this stuff. Just you all fight over this stuff. Deal with this on the other side. This, this is an inheritance that Paul has, which is anchored not in a heaven, good place, hell, bad place ideology, but a promised land. It's, it's anchored in the history of his people because what does he have on the freshness of his mind memorizes the Old Testament. And so when he says inheritance, the word inheritance is a hyperlink directly back to God's people were delivered from Pharaoh out of Egypt so that they could inherit a promised land flowing with milk and honey. And so he's like, man, you all get to be a part of this thing. This is what happens. But, but catch this. Now he understands that it's overlaid. An apocalypse, a revelation happened to Paul as well. And so he realizes, oh, that was amazing. And a land of milk and honey, like, take me to it, right? But what I'm seeing here is that there is a cosmic inheritance. There is a cosmic emancipation from sin in the way that Pharaoh had to let my people go. We get to look in the face of the enemy and say, you don't own us. Let my people go and I get to inherit this new heavens and new earth. Once again, not you go to one place or another place, but that this earth that we are physically, all right, I can make you all jump up and down like that like with me. This earth will be renewed. And it is our inheritance when it is renewed in its glorious nature to all of his holy people. Amen. Now, um, as we inherit this place, he's trying to stir up an excitement in them. This is a renewed heavens, a renewed earth, and it will require a renewed people in order to, one, usher in today be a participant of bringing that thing into the fullness of reality today, but it will also be this place that we as renewed people will have a, 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 a new existence, a new humanly existence, and we get to be a part of that in its fullness then. So he's saying just hold on to that. It's coming. It's like it's the richest of all inheritance. It's the hope of all hope. And then finally he brings us down to this. You also get his incomparably great power for those of us who believe. His incomparably great power. Catch again the language. He's like, it's like there's nothing else that compares to this. For all of us who believe. So here we have access to a kind of power. Once again, I have to keep bringing this back. Contrasted against what? Well, the powers they just left behind. 
the power of this citizenship that still says, hey, come on back to us, and if you don't, we're going to punish you for it, but you also had privileges as a, citizen, as a citizen here. Back to the cult of Artemis, where you can do the things that you were supposed to do for Artemis as your goddess, and they said no to and that. I, I, I want you to see that he has incomparably great power against Artemis, against the cult uh, 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 therein, against the citizenship of this Roman imperial army and all of its power, but also against the magic and the demonic forces that you're up against. Paul wants them to understand, look, you left some things, but the thing you're moving towards is so much greater. It's got a greater inheritance, and it is more powerful. Make no mistake that the name of Jesus Christ is powerful. And then he gives his own commentary, so I'm just going to read it. His incomparably great power for those of us who believe that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Okay, doesn't get much more capable than that. And I've heard someone say this before. It was really good. Um, If you could imagine yourself being Lazarus after he was raised from the dead, what do you do to scare a guy like that? He's been dead, brought back to life, and they're like, I'm going to kill you. Okay. Like, I got, you got nothing. I mean, I know the one who raised me. What are you, you going to do to threaten somebody who lives like that? And so these are the ramifications. And then it says this, and seated, he's talking about Christ, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realm. So it doesn't get much more enthroned than the heavenly realms. So you have the greatest power enthroned in the highest level of authority, verse 21, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked. Do you see how he's saying, like, stop being afraid of those things? Not only in the present age, but also in the one to come, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. There's a level of praise that needs to come out of that. If you're tracking with what he's doing, or maybe you haven't felt the despair that these people are walking through, that's possible, but when you know it and you see this power, you're hungry for it. You want this kind of power. So Paul is asserting that in the face of all of these great powers, you are built in. Remember, the the, the Gentile people being grafted in, you are built into this, and the metaphor that they use there is like a body is to a head. The greatest power in this world that the world has ever seen, and all the benefits included, now flows through you like blood through the veins of a body. Like like those who have the attachment of the neurons of Christ flowing through the, the nerve endings of every aspect of the body of Christ, which we are. It's all there. It's accessible to us. So we see Paul once again. So he's he's praying for them. He knows it's a lot. He knows it's a lot that they have stepped away from, but that they get to step into something that is greater. And he's using these emphatic words. He wants them to understand the capabilities that they have. And in general, the Ephesian book all around, from beginning to end, as you read it, it uses more words um, revolving around the idea of power than anything else in the New Testament. In fact, we read verse 19 just now, and it had four different Greek words for the word power. It's just translated in different ways so we get it. What he needs you to understand is like, there isn't, I'm I'm running out of words. 
I'm the finite person in the cave, and I'm still exploring the depths to which he is. So all I can do is imagine if I have explored the cave up to this far, and I've never been disappointed, I've been wowed every time, and I've gone into greater caverns, all I can imagine is there is even bigger caverns with even more things to explore than I've ever imagined. I don't even got words for it. So I'm just throwing together whatever language I have possible so that I understand that that is all yours. Paul really wants them to see God's activity in their lives. Paul desires that the believers will know this great power, will know God through it, will understand that it is available to them, and it is meant to fully overwhelm the doubt and second-guessing that they might have had as if they're sitting there like, I don't know if this was a good choice. Those Artemis cults are pretty rough. They keep coming around, knocking on my door. The imperial people that are still here keep asking for my allegiances in the midst of it. It keeps drawing me back in, and he's saying, no, no, overwhelm that. Did you make the right decision? You made the right decision. It's trying to draw them forward into this new, greater inheritance that they realize, I forsake, I had forsaken, all right, I got that wrong like eight times first, but I have forsaken these things, but what I'm getting in exchange is better, and he wants to dissolve any residual fear that they might have as they leave their former life, and they war with the powers that they have been entangled with up until this point, because they don't give up easy. And so in my my mind, I was just thinking about this this morning. Um, It's like the sun comes out. And maybe there's been darkness and clouds, but then the sun comes out and its radiance and its brilliance is so overwhelmingly bright that every dark place is lit up. And every little artificial light that you are using to try to figure out how to get around is now completely unnecessary. He said, all the things you gave up, those were just little lights. You have the sun now. It's like the whole light that that brings warmth and brilliance to this earth that gives life-giving sustenance to plants and animals and you as you're walking. It's out. The sunrise has come. Night is over. Everything else that you needed, put it down. This is a greater, stronger, more powerful light than you could ever have imagined. And here's the song that came to mind this morning when um, when I was thinking about this. How many of y'all, I think it was a hymn, uh, I knew it as like a praise hymn that I would tag on to other songs, but the song says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Does anyone know it? Would, would you, I, got a, I even got a thumbs up out there. <laughs> would you uh, indulge me in a second and just give me one line from this together? Acapella, no, no guitar, no nothing, just sing it with me because I want you to hear how this applies to what we're talking about. It says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. Why? When the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Here's my simple takeaway. Would you embrace the things that Paul just prayed over the Ephesian church in your own life? It's not always that easy. Sometimes you have to think it, oh, like, 
God, be brighter than this thing that is luring me in. Be brighter than this thing that I'm afraid of. Be brighter than the things I thought I gave up and just hold on to me and let you be the sun in my life so that everything else just begins to fade. God, can I see the sun amidst these artificial lights that are drawing on my soul? And then begin praying that for our church, that there would be an enlivened faith in the midst of us something that is rekindled. We know that at the end of this in Revelation that he says to the Ephesian church, you forgot your first love. So we kind of know how the end turns and we're no better than this church at Ephesus. So here's how I want to end. I'm just going to simply turn this verse that we just studied into a prayer for us and ask you to begin praying it over your life, praying it over your family's life, praying it over our church, praying it over our city, and praying it over our nation that these things would be true. Amen. Would you pray with me? Yes. Father, give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation continuing over and over so that we might know you better. We pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in us, your holy people, and your incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength you exerted when you raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far and above all rule, authority, power, and dominion in every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but the one to come. And God, you have placed all things under, who's, who's, who, who's had all things placed under his feet. Would you be the head as we become the body, that the fullness of everything that you have would flow through us. And God, this is our prayer for ourselves. This is our prayer for others. This is a prayer for our city. This is a prayer for our church and our country. That the things of earth would grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. We pray for this right now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen.